Hey, hey, this is your Great Legs dude, Jeff Liskey, coming to you on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast, where we're going to be going rage angler on all things Great Lakes, from gear, fly, big water, and swinging flies, of course. If it concerns the Great Lakes, we've got you covered, so stay tuned to this next episode. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Great Lakes Podcast. This is your host, Jeff Liskay, a.k.a. Great Lakes Dude. I'm super stoked for this episode to share with you. My guest today is Mike Durkelet. Mike is the aquatic biologist for the Cleveland Metro Parks, but he has a long list of other talents besides that. He's one of the fishiest dudes I know. He's been a professor at the Cuyahoga Community College level. He's instructed many of youths on his skills in the aquatic biology field, from shocking fish to biology of all aquatic species in and around northern Ohio. But the main thing is, is that I'd like to bring up a couple points. Mike has not only his skills there at Metro Parks, but he publishes this fishing report every week that is probably one of the most popular fishing reports all within, I would say, even the country. So it's followed by everybody. It's the Cleveland Metro Parks Fishing Report. Check it out. It's pretty cool. But Mike is one of the fishiest dudes that I know. His dedication to each species in his countless hours of honing his skills per species to he masters it is uncanny. He's unbelievable, and I'm going to be super excited to dig into some fishing stuff with him, but also we're going to be talking about the rebirth of the Cuyahoga River. And this is a great story. Mike has been involved with this since the inception of it. He's got a lot of great intel to bring to you today. And without further ado, I'd like to welcome Mike Durkelect. Well, thanks, Jeff. And um, I'll send the check for all those nice things you just said about me. You know, <laughs> I want to know what I had to pay for that. But no, um, I, I've Equal mutual respect for Jeff. I always love bouncing ideas off him. I think we both come, you know, to approaching fishing from a pretty analytical standpoint. And um, hopefully some of that comes through today. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Yeah, Mike, thanks. And uh, why don't we just start digging into this great rebirth of the Cuyahoga River, which everybody's noted for the burning river, but that's not the case anymore, Mike, is it? No. Well, I mean, this this um, river was essentially the impetus for the birth of the, you know, environmental movement in this entire country. And that's not really an exaggeration. You know, the river starting on fire several times in the late 60s, early 70s um, was the impetus for the Clean Water Act and all the good things that's kind of come from that since then. And when you said I've been involved since the inception, um, you know, my biggest accomplishment in 1971, which was the year the Clean Water Act was uh, instituted? No, what was it? My big accomplishment was being born that year, Jeff. Yeah. So um, it was my contribution that year. <laughs> yeah. Well, the inception meaning, Mike, that you've been involved with that since you've been in the industry, I'd have to say. Following oh, yeah, it, yeah. Hel- okay. helping out, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I couldn't pass up, though, the the connection of the Clean Water Act of Everdale. Yeah. Kind of yeah, you're right. And, you know, I only stand on the shoulders of uh, all the great people that came before me. And even now, you know, I'm just a small cog and spoke in the wheel of all the environmental folks from various agencies and sportsmen's groups that have done such great work. So, but yeah, looking forward to talking more about that. But when you, when you look back to the late 60s, early 70s and leading up to it, kind of the, the um, prevailing attitude towards rivers, especially in industrialized regions of the, the Great Lakes Rust Belt, was, you know, they're conduits for getting rid of your waste. It, I won't say that was, in you know, stemmed from evil. It was just thought that there was just so much water that you can put bad stuff in and it'll always get diluted. There was an old saying, uh, dilution is the solution to pollution, which isn't necessarily true. But, um, you know, hopefully that, that saying is dying out these days. But that's the way it was viewed then. Um, lots of industrial facilities, wastewater, uh, non-point source, all kinds of stuff going into the river then. Get ready to explore the wild of Northern Rockies adventures. Imagine yourself surrounded by pristine waters, towering mountains, and the thrill of landing trophy fish like the majestic Arctic grayling, the elusive bull trout, or the classic rainbow trout. With over 40 years' experience guiding anglers through these breathtaking landscapes, Daniel's family-operated trips promise not just a fishing journey— but an adventure of a lifetime. 
From the convenience of Vancouver, BC, dive into an all-inclusive experience that caters to every detail of your trip so you can focus on the thrill of the hookup. Take a look for yourself at northernrockiesadventures.com for an exclusive premium BC fly-in fly fishing trip. And we started to see the effects of that. The fire was the most you know, dramatic, or the fires. Um, from oily petroleum-based wastes, but you know, under the surface, the fish community was, you know, all but just flatlining. We mostly had pollution-tolerant species, uh, channel catfish, common carp, which aren't even native. Um, some of the hardier, like um, white suckers, it, it was not a good place with a, a good fish community. And um, we just improved by leaps and bounds since the Clean Water Act was instituted in the early seventies. Yeah, so. As this all transpired, um, what do you think was like the bullet point that like was that light bulb that went off in everybody's eyes, you know, the brain that was like, we have a problem, you know, was like, just like, it was it visual? Like, of course, the fight, the river starting to fire, but what do you think was that bullet point that was like, hey, we got to do something? I mean, it, it really does come back to the fire. That was so obvious. And so you don't have to understand water quality or ecology to see that's wrong. Rivers aren't supposed to burn. And, um, and it made international um, news. So, I mean, I would say part of that was a recognition that, wow, this really is bad. And part of it is probably just embarrassment from the, the region and the agencies that govern that. And, and we got to do something. So fortunately, that that movement started to get traction and it's only gained momentum that continues through today. Right. And, you know, it's, it's such a, a, a diamond in the rough and a gem because now it most of it and not all of it um, is, you know, owners and, you know, with the Metro Park system protecting it in the national parks. So I think it's just one of those resources that everybody's like, hey, we got to really like protect that. Um, maybe let's just start, like what's going on with the river right now? There's a lot of cool things going on. Maybe you could touch on the, what some of the species. Maybe you could talk about, maybe we have a big project with this dam removal. Maybe you could just start, you know, jumping into a few projects that's going on the river right now that you're, you know, that you're aware of and, and also maybe involved with. Sure. Well, one, uh, before we get into real specific projects, one overarching project is just fish monitoring of the river. Um, and we've gone from, again, the lowest possible scores you could have on what is called the IBI. It's what our EPA uses to a qualitative way of measuring how healthy the fish community is. It was essentially the lowest possible score in the early 70s. And decade by decade after that, it has improved to the point that there are stretches of the Cuyahoga River that are scoring as exceptional. Um, there's still hot spots like the shipping channel where there's relatively low fish diversity, but that's a real scientific way of, of measuring fish community. And now we have um, over a hundred species of fish that have used using the river at least periodically through the seasons. Lots of them are residents. So that's something measurable and really cool. And I can even provide a graphic that you can uh, include with the podcast when that's all put together. But as far as other more def definitive defined projects, um, one real obvious one that's making the news and has a huge impact is uh, dam removals. And that's one that, you know, anybody who probably fishes rivers, especially for, you know, ocean or lake run fish realize that, you know, those dams cause an impediment. Fish can't reach their native spawning grounds. Uh, they just can't move to a past a certain point upstream. Um, there's a number of dams that have been or continue to be removed from the river kind of over the last few years and, and into the future. We're actually getting to the point where we're in the we're at the removal of just the last couple of them, one of them being Gorge Dam in um way up by Akron, many miles upstream on the Cuyahoga. But a um, lake run fish get all the way up to that at this point which is just amazing considering, you know, where we were just a few decades ago. And um, and that's been a big one. One of the unseen things with dam removals, um, you know, people can wrap their head around that it's an impediment, meaning fish, a lot of fish can't swim past it. Steelhead being amazing jumpers, you know, they, the ones that stray into the river, we'll get to more on that shortly. Um, you know, they can jump a pretty substantial barrier, but there's a lot of other fish species in the river, you know, suckers, catfish, um, minnow species, important stuff in the ecology of the river that can't get past those. So um, removing the dam allows them to easily have access upstream and downstream as they need to migrate. But um, one of the less obvious things is how dams affect water quality. When you have a big pool that's formed behind a dam, it, it tends to become more stagnant, especially in hot weather periods during low water. 
Um, you can get lower oxygen level. You certainly have a less diversity of habitats. So um, removing those dams also, you know, just improves the stretch of river upstream of the dam where it used to be a dam pool to make it, you know, suitable for a whole bunch of species as opposed to just a handful of species. A dam pool is great for largemouth bass. Bass anglers tend to love them. Great for catfish, but there's a whole bunch of species that don't thrive as well there. So that is a cool one. Uh, mentioned Gorge Dam up by Akron, slated to be removed uh, in the coming years. And then uh, the most recent one that was removed was right in Brecksville, um, sandwiched between Cleveland Metro Parks and the Cuyahoga Valley National Park. Um, that was, uh, you know, only a, a, a dozen or so miles upstream from the lake. And um, that allows all kinds of fish to now start to move back and forth through that area that formerly could not. Yeah, Mike. So, Lee, we should just, you know, for the listeners, just to wrap their head around how diverse this this river is, is that even though now we have a migratory species that can make it up to this Edison Dam, um, how many miles do you think it is? It's is it pretty close to over sixty miles there, or do, do you know offhand? But you know how many? Yeah, um, I don't have the exact figure offhand, but yeah, it's right in the neighborhood of seventy miles, is my understanding. So that's a, a lot of river, and a lot of that's excellent fish habitat. Again, there's there's miles of the shipping channel closer to Lake Erie that are are deep with bulkhead and limited habitat. That's still a work in progress, but you know, ninety nine percent of the rest of that mileage is is you know is diverse fish habitat yeah and of course once we remove this this dam that's pretty much inoperational now and get rid of the sediments behind it this will improve the habitat like you said above it but also below it too correct yeah yeah it, um you know more market you know upstream of the dam but you know you'll have better oxygen levels downstream of the dam and you know, during hotter periods of the year when the water's more stagnant coming over the dam. Um, and, um, you know, that that is one, though, that there is a natural false um, beneath the dam. So um, it's a unique one in that it may not improve the migration of fish upstream, but it'll it'll make a historic falls, natural falls, um, you know, brought to light again where people can appreciate it. And um, and again, like you noted, won't, won't allow the water to pull upstream of it with the detrimental effects that can cause. Yeah, there's like almost a 65 foot gradient change there or something. Am I somewhere in that neighborhood? It's pretty radical, right? Jeff is showing his engineering contractor path. He's got the <laughs> numbers dialed in. That that sounds about right. I don't actually know how high that is on end, but see, having seen images of it, that sounds like right at the ballpark. I think it was the images you 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 showed too. I was like, that's you know, I think there was like wording about 60, but it, it's a pretty pretty immense drop of gradient there, but. So there's yep. other cool things going on. The native species are going to benefit overall. Everybody's aware of it. But the Division of Ohio Wildlife is, and they are currently going to stock migratory trout, great a.k.a. Great Lake Steelhead, in the Cuyahoga River now. Somewhere in the neighborhoods of 50,000 of these fish they're going to plant. Um, pretty unique program that's going to happen, isn't it, Mike? It's cool, and it's just kind of a next logical step. Um, you know, and anybody in the region knows, maybe some of your viewers outside the region are not aware that there's already steelhead coming into the river. There's already people targeting them. Um, I would describe it personally more like a West Coast experience versus what a lot of people think of as steelhead alley steelheading, meaning the fish are spread out. You're going to have to work to find them. Uh, you're going to have to cover a lot of water. Some people love that. Uh, other people want a little more of a, you know, a feeling that every nice hole they come up to is going to have a chance of having a few steelhead in it. We get spoiled around here. But um, yeah, steelhead have already become, been straying into the river for years. In fact, at least seven tributaries of the river have had some degree of natural reproduction of steelhead. Not enough to sustain a fishable population, but it just shows that some of the tributaries of the river are, are really nice water quality, colder, cleaner, smaller creeks. Um, so, you know, the next logical step was to expand this to make it a, a bigger, more enticing fishery for more people. And as you noted, spring of 2024 is going to be the first year that the Division of Wildlife has, has ever stocked steelhead in the Cuyahoga River, which is super exciting. Now, of course, keep in mind, it's going to be a couple of years till we have adult steelhead from that stocking coming back. So, you know, jack or skipper fish probably start coming back in spring of, you know, fall of uh 2024, spring of 2025, and then adult fish in subsequent years. But yeah, we're on the cusp of taking an already 
um, viable steelhead fishery and making it that much better. Yeah, you, you've been involved with um, some surveys of the tributaries. Um, like you said, there's always documentation. I think you're one of the ones that spearheaded, like because it's on uh, you know the Metro Parks properties and otherwhere. But you've actually found um, par, you know, steelhead that, like you said, prior to the stocking, that's already survived, right? So this is something that's not new. Can you maybe you know elaborate a little bit about what you found? Yeah. And, um, you know, what, one interesting thing, we already, we're not monitoring just to track the steelhead. That's a side benefit. You know, those IBIs I mentioned earlier, it's a way we qualitatively use, you know, science to track health of a fishery based on its fish populations. We do that in, in our various um, land holdings and streams throughout the park, including the smaller headwater streams. So um, we got a bunch of those that eventually flow into the Cuyahoga. They're part of the watershed. So um, what's cool, in addition to all kinds of native fish, is um, a nice handful of them. We find not only juvenile young of year steelhead, in some cases we find holdover fish that have spent at least the whole summer in these streams based on their size. And what's interesting is um, it's not even just the real pristine streams. Like We got a few that are, are nice quality. Um, most of them run through wooded areas, have a little bit of spring seepage clean substrate. Those are the obvious ones you might expect some some juvenile trout spawning in. Um, but we even see them in some of the pretty urbanized streams that are mostly getting stormwater runoff. Um, West Creek, that 90 plus percent of that runs through an urbanized area. Um, we actually see some uh, natural production of steelhead there. So um, they are resilient, maybe more than some people would tend to think. But, um, you know, they, I, I guess uh, I'll quote the guy from Jurassic Park and say, nature seems to find a way. I mean, the steelhead are spawning in some surprising areas. But as you would expect, most of them are spawning in the greatest numbers successfully in the higher quality streams. Okay. Yeah. And so even if the lower section of these tributaries are not quite suitable for the best reproduction, they can push through to those headwaters where, you know, they'll have more success, correct? Because some of these are go, some of these tributaries go quite a ways inland to some nice shaded areas where the water's cooler is there any springs that actually come into some of them do you're aware of or like just to make sure or upwellings and stuff yeah um great question and that's true what you said about you know the further upstream you go in the tributaries the the, the more likely some of those are going to not all of them some are going to be more protected they're smaller so less land has to be intact for them to be in really nice shape um the shading of these streams definitely is another factor it keeps the water cooler um, we're not in an area where geologically we have a lot of springs. I mean, there's areas out getting towards Michigan and even Western Ohio where you have more limestone or sandy substrate, and that's more common. But there are still some seepages, and um, I would more think of it as rather than a, a small stream that's completely spring-fed and cold and the whole thing suitable for trout, you know, there's little refuge areas where there's smaller seepages of spring water coming through the bedrock that, you know, it's just cold enough that some of the fish are going to have certain pools or certain areas of streams that they can hold over the summer. So, man, that's it's going to be so exciting to watch this all unfold here. You know, it's not going to be a you know ASAP. Like, oh, we stock them. This is going to happen, like you said. But it'd be really fun to watch how this all transpires and how people attack the fishing. Um, and then another good bullet point is you know we have this reproduction too, but. Everybody might be thinking, why would we stock steelhead, you know, in the Cuyahoga River, you know, because it has lots of access, but some of it's a little more challenging, like you said. But I think everybody needs to be aware that you're just because you have waders and you have all this very elaborate gear that you're a steelheader. The angler that's just sitting there off of um, the Metro Parks East 55th, you know, public piers and at the mouth of Whiskey Island where Metro Parks allows all this public fishing that just sitting on a lawn chair trying to catch these same fish that are migrating river, it's a pretty pretty big bullet point that these anglers now are going to be able to catch these fish, right? That inner city angler. And then wouldn't you think that's a pretty big bullet point too? Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned Whiskey Island, uh, where the old Coast Guard station, basically the mouth of the Cuyahoga River where it comes into Cleveland Harbor. You know, you can catch um, stray steelhead are caught there regularly in the fall and uh, during the colder season. Catfish, not surprisingly, are caught there. Um, walleye during the, you know, pre-spawn and post-spawn period, some really nice ones at times. And then even yellow perch. Um, I'm one of those people. Um, I'll 
take a wagon out with a couple lawn chairs and a cooler and a couple of perch rods. And um, I've actually caught a limit of perch right where the Cuyahoga River uh, flows into Lake Erie. And although I don't like being steelhead, I love being perch. So, yeah, I mean, I'm just one of a lot of people from all walks of life that enjoys fishing that way. And, you know, with the stocking the river, it's not going to be limited to just the river mouth, obviously. You know, there's going to be places with relatively easy access. As you noted, a lot of the river is a little more challenging to get to. It probably best fished large expanses of it really with a raft or kayak if you have that luxury. But there are areas you can fish from shore. And um, yeah, folks are, are going to take advantage of that and enjoy that. Yeah, I mean, that's that's going to be because Cleveland, if everybody's not quite aware, it has about a seven mile long break wall that's protected that's going to offer a lot of diverse fishing opportunities because these fish will be staging in the fall and in the spring. But you mentioned walleyes, Mike. Is there, and I'm not too aware of it. I've only caught a few. Do the walleyes migrate up Cuyahoga to try to spawn? Are you aware of that at all? Have any experience with that or no? That's a great question. And whereas um, I do most of my monitoring of the headwater of smaller streams, because that's our niche where other agencies are not collecting that data, um, our local EPA, Ohio EPA, and our Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District do lots of fish sampling in the Cuyahoga River proper. They've found all kinds of cool stuff over the years. But um, walleye had been coming up to that um, Route 82, the Brexfield Diversion Dam we, we touched on. They're not good jumpers, so they didn't get past it. Um, they were spawning in the river, even downstream of that. Not large numbers, but it was happening. Um, I'm excited to just see what happens to the, the walleye run and fishery in the river. I expect over the years it will continue to improve since a lot more of the river upstream that can potential spawning habitat is open to them now. And um, and they're already using the river, so that, that should all only increase and improve. So that's interesting because that's touching on sort of an actual river population and, and fishery of walleyes. Uh, the stuff at the, the river mouth is more the, the Lake Erie fish just taking advantage of feeding opportunities during, you know, spring and fall times of year. But, um, yeah, the walleye fishery is one that it can only improve from this point in some of the things that have happened with the river. So if a migratory Lake Erie walleyes ran up the river and they proceeded to spawn successfully, is it a possible to assume that they could be self-propagating and become a river resident and not go back to Lake Erie? That's a super exciting possibility that certainly could happen. So time will tell. As noted, even before some of the improvements we're, we're touching on that are have happened recently and are continuing to happen, walleye were already spawning below that dam in small numbers. So I, I find it hard to imagine just, you know, as a biologist and an angler that it's not only going to improve, you know, in the future. And um, let's hope maybe we'll have a nice viable um, walleye run in the river 10 years from now. Right. You know, and I think I think it's such an underutilized fishery now. There's some there's a lot of anglers that take advantage of it, but now that we've introduced this maybe a little more high profile, you know, the steelhead trout, that more anglers will be catching more miscellaneous species like you've experienced in your shockings that will be pretty eye opening experiences. But one fish that's sort of a dinosaur that might be introduced to it that the government is thinking about um, underneath the United States is uh, would be what, Mike? What are they thinking about stocking in the Cuyahoga? Pretty cool. Yeah. Um, well, lake sturgeon. There have been historic records of lake sturgeon in the river. Anybody regionally would probably be aware on some level. They've, they've reintroduced sturgeon to the Maumee River, which is a really large lake area tributary kind of out closer to you know, the west end of the lake. But um, kind of feeding on that Maumee River project and you know the momentum going with you know, how far along the Cuyahoga's come, it was a next logical choice to explore. And is it a possibility? So um, a lot has been done. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is, is leading the charge, but um, all local agencies that work with water quality fisheries have had some stake in it, us included. But um, we've been exploring the Cuyahoga River, looking to see if there's suitable spawning habitat and nursery habitat for lake sturgeon. And um, the University of Toledo has had researchers working under that umbrella of agencies I mentioned. And um, they found that there's even more suitable habitat um, in the Cuyahoga than there was in the Maumee, which already had the green light a few years ago to have sturgeon introduced. So, um, yeah, it's looking very probable that in um, fall of 2024, that's not concrete definite but it's looking really good juvenile lake sturgeon uh, will likely be introduced to the river 
and with the hope that looking forward in about 15 years, because sturgeon take a while to mature, <laughs> that we can have an actual spawning migration of, of lake sturgeon, a really cool, iconic, large, as you mentioned, a living dinosaur kind of coming up the river to spawn. So, yeah. What are they looking for? What are they looking for for their spawning habitat that makes it so critical for the you know report card of like can we stock it? Are they, is there certain things they're looking for for their their habitat? Or that's a great question. From a spawning standpoint, um, substrate is really important. Um, they kind of like a cobble gravel substrate, which is, there's lots of that upstream in the river. A lot of that access to that was cut off by some of the dams, including the, the Brexville Dam just removed in recent years. So um, dam removals have been a big part of the reason why that was a possibility. It's opened up lots more of that type of habitat. But, you know, deeper kind of riffly rapid areas that have cobble gravel substrate, suitable depth you look for, suitable flow, which the Cuyahoga has. and has just about everything in terms of the depth and flow. It's a pretty big brawling river, especially for Steelhead Alley. I'd say it's got a bigger base flow um, than Cattaraugus Creek in New York, which is iconic. And and some people compare that to a, you know, reminds them of a smaller British Columbia stream. I'd say the, the Cuyahoga, you could say the same thing about. Um, yeah, that's that habitat's there. And then um, slacker, kind of more gentle um, flow areas are where they, they generally use for what we call nursery areas. The juvenile sturgeon hatch, they drift downstream and they need those types of areas for feeding and just to be able to do well. So yeah, it's exciting. And um, in, you know, 50 years from now, you know, the this occasional smallmouth or steelhead angler on a river may tie into a uh, five foot long sturgeon. Um, it's actually looking like that's going to be a more likely possibility than not of happening. So that's exciting. Yeah. What, what calendar month would this, would an angler be expecting to see this, you know, in say 10 years or so if they, if this program goes ahead, like, is it spring, fall or winter? When do they enter the river to do their, their, their spawning and reproducing? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, interestingly, my, my graduate work was with paddlefish in the Ohio uh, and Scioto rivers. And I bring that up because I studied spawning and early life history of the species. And they're in the same um, group of fish as the sturgeon. Um, they're very closely related. So, And their spawning time frame is very similar as well. It tends to be um, during some of the peak of, of flows in uh, early to mid-spring. And uh, that's when they'd be coming in. Whether they stick around long after spawning, um, probably similar to steelhead. They spawn, and I'd expect the adult fish to start dropping back to the lake pretty quickly. But um, the juvenile fish will be around the river for a while until they're big enough to go out and fend for themselves in Lake Erie. But um, but yeah, but probably spring. I think uh, the spring steelhead angler, maybe down the road, the spring walleye angler, let's keep our fingers crossed, maybe the most likely ones to run across a, a sturgeon. Right. Are they broadcast spawners? Is that how they go about, you know, reproducing is broadcast spawners in those areas or how does that work? Yeah, good question. Yeah, they unlike a steelhead, they're not like digging or rad, that kind of thing. Even though they're spawning over cobble gravel, they're kind of broadcasting their eggs. Their eggs tend to be sticky. And um when they come in contact with the substrate, they're, they're spawning in the proximity of what they've determined in their prehistoric little heads is a good spawning area, but the eggs kind of fall where they may and they stick to that well aerated cobble and gravel and that's where they kind of incubate eventually spawn uh, eventually hatch man that's going to be that's going to be really cool to follow and uh i think every generation from starting now all the way through will see the benefits of this and hopefully i'm on this side of the grass to you know see it myself but is there any other you know we'll move on from sturgeon um you is there like rainbow trout stockings anywhere in the Cuyahoga that is a put and take that these anglers can take advantage of that you know that you're working with or agencies that we're doing using? Yeah, the, the last two years, um, kind of forward thinking, uh, city of uh, Cuyahoga Falls upstream, um, they've stocked catchable sized rainbow trout just to make a little spring. I think we're mainly looking at a little spring kind of fishery for folks in their city. Um, one surprise of that has been that um, there have been found to be a a few of those rainbow trout holding over throughout the entire year in the main stem of the Cuyahoga River. So that we talked about the, the headwater streams having the cooler water and the, and the type of environment that small trout can survive this summer. I was even a little surprised to, to hear that some of the rainbow trout were finding areas like that in the main Cuyahoga River up that's pretty far upstream. I guess putting two and two together is as you get further towards Akron and Kent, that's kind of an old 
Bering Glacial River Valley. It's got a lot more gravel and that sandy um, type habitat that allows for spring seeps than than we do in most of Steelhead Alley of Ohio. But um, that's probably what's going on. There's just seepages and springs in, in the main river that's allowing some fish to survive. But um, that's a cool uh, put and take fishery that will is going to continue. Um, and then, of course, um, you mentioned the walleye. That's a gr- hopefully going to be a growing native opportunity. Um, the Cuyahoga River has excellent opportunities for resident and lake-run smallmouth bass already. It only looks to improve for the same reasons we mentioned with walleye. And if you go further upstream, um, there's some. Um, it's probably one of the best northern pike fisheries in, in northeast Ohio. So there's other opportunities for anglers in general. Those certainly are a couple species very conducive to fly fishing uh, that are already there that should only continue to benefit from the recovery of the river. Yeah, and I'll talk about one of your favorite species you've been talking about. I've heard some rumors that there's been a few muskies caught in that river. Is that true? Yeah. Um, actually, <laughs> the Division of Wildlife electrofished one. Unfortunately, there's no photograph of it, but I knew from from good word from Bill Hillman, who was a legendary fish biologist with the state, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago. He told me about a 30-pound muskie they got below the um, Brexville Dam, which at the time, it, you were left to deduce as probably a fish that came up from Lake Erie, whether it was lost or part of a remnant population, can't say for sure. And then um, I've actually put together a recent presentation about the recovery of the river, the fish population of the river. And so I was kind of turning over stones, looking for interesting info. And um, I got a photo of a, a, a decent-sized muskie, caught it way up in uh a tributary of the Cog River called Breakneck Creek out by Kent, which is known to have a lot of uh, northern pike. So how did that muskie get in there? I'm not really sure, but, you know, there's been a, and those are just a couple of the records, but they're really, really rare. I don't think of the, the hundreds of thousands of fish our sewer district, for example, <laughs> has sampled during their various surveys of the river. I don't think they've ever turned up a muskie, but um, it doesn't mean, you know, that with more muskies, turning up along the Lake Erie shoreline, you know, maybe a few will duck into the river. And over time, maybe that's a fishery that'll start to develop. That'd be a real wish list thing for me. But um, yeah, that's <laughs> probably less likely than some of the other stuff we talked about. But yes, muskies have, to answer your question, a few muskies have turned up in the river, but they're really, really rare. Yeah. Um. So maybe let's just dig into now that um, if in this program for the steelhead fishing get along and it, it, it starts to transpire and it is a pretty intimidating river compared to like you said our other what i call open book streams like you walk down the river you say oh there's a hole that's where they got to be under normal flows this river changes its face immensely within this 60 70 miles whatever it's going to be of fishery so for me um, swinging a fly, like, you know, I think it's going to be a great opportunity to, to approach a big river that way. But maybe you could help, you know, help the listeners say, like, what would the, you know, what would be some of the base models of what you look for, for like in the river system to just to go chase these fish? Like, what we, like, how do you dissect a river that big, Mike? Yeah. And as you kind of alluded to, just in contrast to some of the other Lake Erie tributaries, you know, Elk Creek in Pennsylvania, lots of people fish that for steelhead. It's mostly bedrock bottom. There's ledges and drop-offs. The holes are really well-defined. Um, you know, the riffles are well-defined. Depending on time of year and what you're looking for, you can usually tell where the fish are, even if it's not clear enough to see 200 of them in a hole, which sometimes happens. Cuyahug is not like that. Um, you could float a couple of miles of the Cuyahug River, let's just say through the eyes of a steelhead angler, and you might think to yourself, wow, there could be fish literally anywhere in this river. There, It's got good depth, even in the, the, the rapids and ripples compared to some of the smaller tributaries. The, the holes can be giant, um, full of habitat like woody debris adjacent to them. Um, it can be intimidating, especially considering, as, as noted, for people that already steelhead fish there, it's not stuck. So this, the relatively modest number of straight fish can spread out not only over a lot of miles of river, but every mile of that that river could potentially look like it could hold fish. So I think a, stra- a couple strategies you can employ as an angler to kind of approach that. Um, one is just um, use techniques that are going to cover the most water. It will can help you dial in on those sweet spots that maybe not as obvious as some of the other steelhead streams, but there will be areas the fish like more than other areas. 
And sometimes just experimenting and fishing is hard to get around that. It's the best way to find those. Plus, you have a good friend who fishes it and tells you. So, you know, swinging flies, as noted, um, using a raft to cover or kayak to cover more water. Um, I see it as a really good opportunity for people that like to fish hardware. Like I go up to British Columbia, like you, Jeff, you swing flies there. I probably swung spoons. Um, either technique, swinging hardware and just covering a lot of water would be a good way to just find fish and find those better areas. And then, you know, starting to put two and two together. If you start finding fishing areas, try to, to recognize, okay, what's going on here? What's different about where I just caught two fish versus the 10 miles I drifted and didn't catch any steelhead? Um, and we keep going back to steelhead. This could apply to smallmouth bass or walleye or probably lots of species. Steelhead is a pretty obvious one. And um, maybe, you know, you're finding them in more of a cobbly tail out of a big pool that has some some fallen wood next to it, that kind of thing. The thing in almost all ecology and fisheries is no exception. Um, animals, fish, and other organisms used tend to use the best available habitat. And if there's a lot of good habitat, they're going to tend to use the best of that. And if, um, you know, it's a small stream that is pretty um, lacking in deeper holes, that's going to be pretty obvious. The best habitat is going to be those deep holes. In a big river like the Cuyahoga, it's going to be harder to find what the best available habitat is. But you know, make notes after your trips, keep a fishing diary, um, where you caught those fish, you know, try to just make some notes about, you know, the type of water, the flow, the depth, you know, anything additional, like is, was there woody habitat? Was there boulders in that tail out? Um, that would be my best advice. You know, techniques that cover a lot of water, not only you as the angler, whether that's a raft or just putting on your wading boots and getting ready to walk a few miles, um, but also that implying uh, techniques that cover water efficiently. The old traditional spay technique of, you know, cast kind of quartering your way downstream as you go. I couldn't think of a better way in a better river to fish that way than the Cuyahoga. But that that technique could apply to people drifting bait under a bobber for steelhead or swinging a spinner or a spoon. So that and then making notes about kind of where you do find those fish and starting to dial in what makes for the best available habitat in such a habitat-rich river. Yeah, right. So I've floated quite a bit of it. Um, and I have, like yourself, caught some steelhead there, these ones that aren't stocked. This has been going on for a while now. But So I see in Michigan, steelhead will lay in a sandy bottom, you know, in and around wood. Cuyahoga River has some sand. Um, it also has a lot of mud bottoms with, you know, the clay running along the thing. Do you anticipate these fish maybe to using all parts of it as they migrate through? Because there's miles of this slow-looking, undefined water. And I find myself, like you said, I, it, I think they're going to even use that at, at times, right? Don't you think? I do. I think it's going to be, you know, recognizing the seasonal behavior of your quarry. If You know, it's warmer weathers with decent flows in October or um, similar situation in April. You know, you're going to be mostly looking for gravel nearby, maybe deeper holes just downstream of that for drop back or staging fish. Um, and in dead of winter is when it's going to get a little trickier. You know, those fish may be laying on the bottom right up against or in the wood. It might be on silty, sandy bottoms that you don't normally think of as the best, you know, habitat for steelhead. But, you know, they're going to look for those slower flow areas where that silt and sand tend to settle out and, and be in those areas. Actually brings up uh, another technique you never see locally that they use commonly in Michigan that will probably could be a good way to, to cover that type of water in Ohio is pulling plugs, you know, getting a raft or drift boat and just working your way down with the oars and letting your wobbling plugs bounce right into that wood and through all that relatively otherwise harder to find water. So, um, but yeah, I think it's, it, it is an intimidating river. Um, if you want, if you're a steelhead angler who wants to feel really confident that every hole you fish has probably got a few steelhead in it, you just got to make them bite. It might not be the experience you're looking for. If you're a type of angler that, you know, likes to hunt your fish and likes a challenge, it's going to be a great opportunity for those types of folks. Yeah, I think it offers another bullet point why, you know, the state was looking to stock it was to do to diversify the ever-growing population of anglers utilizing the smaller streams. This opens up and it gives you that still that piece of like your own little world going to fish. You might not get the numbers like you said, Mike, but it gives them like 
if I catch one today or hook one today, but I fished this entire day and only seen one other angler or no other anglers, I think it offers that experience. Pretty cool there on that aspect, wouldn't you think? Yeah. I mean, one of the hottest top, Jeff, that you and I are both involved with Ohio Central Bay and Steelheaders, real forward-thinking sportsman's group, and we address the issues of the day. And one of the big ones is just angler access. And, you know, we have an awesome fishery, but it brings um, a lot of interested people more every year, more traveling people every year. So, um, you know, one challenge we grapple with is public access. The more people, the unfortunate double-edged sword, the more people you get loving of fishery, the more posted properly you tend to see popping up. So, um, yeah, the Cuyahoga really spread, it spreads out the people, but I like the way you kind of alluded to it. It also spreads out the type of experience. It's a very different experience than the other steelhead streams. Fishing should be about different experiences for different people. And um, this one offers, I would venture to say of all the Ohio steelhead streams, it offers the most unique and most different opportunity uh, than all the others. Yeah, I, I see myself walking or even using a bicycle along the many miles of towpath that follows the river during the summertime, fishing for warm water species, and then saying, hey, I need to come back and visit this for steelhead fishing, using that towpath as my you know my means and method. Because if you don't own a float boat or want to get involved with that, it still offers you a nice way to walk and get involved in you know, because walking along the banks there sometimes can be a little challenging, but we do have this nice path that borders it. So it's going to be really fun to get everybody involved with this. I think it's going to be a great experience. I'm glad the state got involved. But, you know, is there anything else you'd like to add about the Kyle River before I start pounding you with some pretty fishy questions? <laughs> no, I just smile when you were saying that, thinking we're probably on the cusp of having, you know, the first orvis fishing bike or something like that <laughs> no but you're absolutely right that's i i bike that area up by independence and peninsula with my wife um just for the fun of biking and sighting it's beautiful and it as you noted it follows the river like its entire length most of the entire length that both path trail is a short distance to the river that is going to be a really good way to cover water and fish it that um is probably more accessible than having a drift boat or raft to the average person. So yeah, that's a really good point and a good way to cover water. Yeah. Um. One last thing I'd like to add is that you know there is some national park rules and regulations for fishing, and one is called you know the the bait ban or you know that live bait ban. And um, we did some research, and you know if you're a spawn fisherman, um, the way we're interpreting it is that you know you're you have to have cured eggs. Um, I'd like you to maybe to clarify that. And then does the Metro Parks um, sections of the river fall underneath those regulations of the National Park or no, Mike? Yeah, that's a good question. And that is, unfortunately, is a real point of confusion for the people that fish the river. Honestly, the people that like artificials are probably going to love it. Because if you're on Cauga Valley National Park property, you can't use live bait. And, and if you said you heard that Cured eggs are okay. I just heard natural fish roe was was not legal, but you probably have more updated information than me. It it just shows even you and I don't completely see the exact gray areas of this. It is confusing. We have tried to address we meaning just not me or Cleveland Metro Parks, but even the Ohio Division of Wildlife talking to National Park about trying to make things less confusing because you know a lot of the you can't use emerald chiners for bait there yet. Emerald chiners can come up from Lake Erie uh, through most of the steelhead water that people are fishing anyways. But um, I think the National Park rule stems from, it does stem from a good area. They don't want people trucking non-native live shiners into some remote part of the National Park and introducing what becomes a real problem species down the road. It's kind of unique here because, you know, they're applying that rule to, to a really urban area where a lot of these species people are using for bait are already here anyways. But, you know, they're not, they're not going to change the entire national park rules, uh, as I understand it, for just one one park in one situation. So they're kind of standing their ground on that, which is fine. But um, to answer your question, Ohio, um, any Cleveland Metro Parks land holdings or um, Summit Park land holdings further upstream, you know, they don't have the same type of, of bands. So um, I guess you have to know where you're fishing. Um, Cleveland Metro Parks has a really good free app. Um, that's all GPS kind of integrated. You just go to your app store and look up Cleveland Metro Parks. And, you know, it'll show where you're at. It'll show if you're on park land, 
Um, you'll know if you're in Cleveland Parks, not only you're there without trespassing, we should probably touch on stream access laws in Ohio now that I think about it, but because it's different in every state. But um, it'll show where you're at, and you'll know if you're in Cleveland Metro Parks that you can use that spawn, or you can use you know those those maggots on a jig and or wax worm, and it's not going to be an issue. Whereas if you cross over to National Park, you know that could give you a ticket, worst case scenario. So, right, Mike. Maybe we should let's. So just for everybody that's non uh, that's not coming from the state of Ohio, um, the rules and regulations of property land would be that the property owners own the river bottom. So you're not legally allowed to get out of your raft in private waters. You can float through it, but this is a, one of those deals where the, you can float and get out at will all through the Cuyahoga. Now there might be very little small sections you might not to, but uh, I'm fully aware that's going to open up just you can go and come as you please which is really nice just like the metro parks systems that you know you adjacent on the chagrin and the rocky river mike right it's just a great access way for public yeah it's absolutely right the, the kind of in the rocky more of that is more continuous miles are completely in public holding which less of an issue if you go up the west branch of the rocky there's almost all private land with a few exceptions um, the chagrins differ. You know, you get up on the chagrin um, going upstream and, you know, you can have clear metro parks on one side of the river and then the middle of the river is cut usually the delineating zone where it's private owned on the other side. But again, you, at least in our parks, just getting that free app is the easiest way to tell you if you're, if you're legit or not. But there's no high water mark rule in Ohio like there are in some states. We really have not, you know, our, our DNR does not have a conservation easement program like New York, for example, has. So um, the bottom line, as Jeff noted, is, you know, just be aware if you're not in an area of just contiguous national park or local park system like mine, um, you know, if you're standing on the bottom in private property, even if it's not posted, it, it's on you as the person that's that's using the property to have written permission in the way it's supposed to be in Ohio. So I guess just, you know, do your research before heading out. Um, as as noted, though, if it's a navigable water, which is basically all of our steelhead streams, you can float through it without an issue because the plant owner doesn't own the water. They just own the river bottom. You just can't get out. I've been told by a wildlife officer that in the strictest inter interpretation of that rule, if you're fishing and your sinker is bouncing bottom, you're trespassing. I don't think that would ever be enforced, but just know that, you know, that at least in the, the most black and white interpretation of the law that's how that is so i think we're all we're all breaking that law <laughs> um sweet mike well let's uh let's put closure to this cuyahoga because we could probably go on i'd still have a little more time and i really like to dive into some fishy talk because i've seen you literally take and cut rubber off of a musky lure and glue a different color tail on while you're on the water and you're you're a master of taking a spin, you know, uh, a species from the, when you started with the center pin reels and steelhead, and now you're, you know, ice fishing brown trout to musky fishing. You have this knack of understanding fish because you live fish 365 days a year. So as an angler, I do both. I gear fish and I fly fish. We struggle a lot as a fly angler because we can't, you know, we don't have a lot of times a vibration. We have some flash, but is let's talk a little bit about the lure presentation of like the vertical drop of a lure or the fly or the horizontal presentation. Maybe you could just, the way you thought process, like when you would use one presentation over another and, you know, in, involve that with just a general species, like outlook, like that negative, positive, neutral type, you know, behavior. Maybe you can just give us your thought process on how you approach that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. And that's a kind of a unique twist on the usual questions. That's pretty cool to think about. Um, you know, a lot of what I'm probably going to propose here could be applied to most game fish species, but let, let's just take two of them that we both love and, and pursue steelhead in rivers and musky in large body reservoirs and Lake St. Clair, Detroit river, whatever. And, um, you know, a more of a vertical presentation, at least with the steelhead in the river, I think of that like, um, where you you know where the fish are, you you have a precision thing going because whether you got a strike indicator like John Nagy with his hallmark book about Lake Erie Steel, and he talks a lot about the right angle presentation, just kind of putting a different name to the typical you know 
um, nymphing strike indicator presentation a lot of folks are familiar with, used all around the country for a lot of species. Um, if you know, you know, the fish are in that hole where they're at a relative certain depth and you can set your strike indicator or float if you're a steelhead float angler, center pin angler, um, it really helps you keep your presentation in that strike zone very precisely. You can even slow things down by pulling back. We call that, at least in center pin fishing, checking the rod a little to even get the fish even more time to see that offering. So like cold water, fish are in pretty defined areas, maybe a little less active. That vertical presentation that you have a lot of control over and you can even slow it down is, is a good one. That same vertical thing now I'll apply to my understanding and experience with muskie. If muskies are really glued to particular habitat features, could be the, the end of a point kind of jutting into a reservoir, could be the edge of the shipping channel on the jigging the Detroit River. That's where, you know, jigging a bondy bait, for example, is, is a really good way of keeping your your bait in that precise strike zone more efficiently, longer, and with a greater degree of kind of well precision. So um, you know, relatively neutral or negative fish, that's another those for both species, a good good way to good reason to employ those techniques. It gives them a longer time to see your bait. It keeps you more in the strike zone in more defined areas longer. Now, kind of more of a, the least, at least I address and think of the question, more of a horizontal or or I think that is a horizontal presentation is more of like kind of covering water approach. Maybe when the fish are more active, being glued to a particular part of the water column, like the bottom is not as important. Like if you're doing with jigging a bondy bait for musky or right angle indicator drifting for steelhead in a river, um, you're covering more water. So back to the Cuyahoga River we just talked about. That's a river that's intimidating. There's so much holding water, you know, more of a, a you know, area covering horizontal approach of a swung fly. Not only a more active fish is going to chase that more likely, so you don't have to be glued to the habitat feature as tightly, which you're just covering a lot of water and putting your fly or your spoon or spinner in front of a bunch of fish compared to just a really slow presentation of kind of jigging or drifting a hole. You know, I think about the transition from, you know, summer to fall muskies. There's a real tran a predictable transition here where I fish for muskies in Ohio on our reservoirs. Um, the, in the summer, when a thermocline sets up, those fish couldn't be more defined where they're at. They're as far down in the waters they can go until there's not enough oxygen. We call that our thermocline. It usually sets up at about 15-ish feet on most of our local reservoirs. The old areas where that thermocline kind of intersects with kind of the old creek channel and if there's wood or other features, boulders, even better, you know, that's where a more precise kind of approach is going to work. I like to jig the edge of the old creek channel in summer, and um, that's a deadly way to kind of target muskies. On the other hand, when you kind of hit that, you know, you have ball turnover, the water temperatures are more uniform to the water column. There's no longer that oxygen void zone down low. Um, it opens a lot more of our local reservoirs to the muskies, so, you know, they can go where they want, at least from a biological standpoint. There's enough oxygen and suitable temperatures for them anywhere. So then, so what are you looking for then? You're, you're looking for schools of bait fish. So that's where a side scan sonar, I haven't made the jump in a live scope, but that would equally be great. You know, you're, you're more looking for, you know, the bait fish with your electronics than the, um, than you are looking for the actual muskies, even though, you know, I've had a cool opportunities where on the side scan, I've seen a big ball of shad and a really big muskie mark right on it. So um, in that case, you know, you're not, focusing on real precise habitat features like the old creek channel or a ledge in the river like you would with steelhead. You're just trying to cover water. So trolling uh, larger expanses of water, looking for those shad is a better strategy for fall musky fishing. Not as exciting as feeling the thump of a fish, you know, hitting a jig or a cast a cast bait, but um, it is an efficient way to, to cover water and, and catch those fish that are moving around more transient in the fall. So that's a real interesting question. That was a little bit of a rambling answer. Hopefully it made sense, but at least that's my take on it. Yeah, no, it, it makes a lot of sense. So there's two things I want to backtrack on. And I've noticed now that, so you mentioned this 90 degree presentation. And I know that when you check the float in the conventional gear, the monofilament line goes into the top of the float. And then there are some indicators in the fly fishing world now that the line will come in through the top of the indicator. 
I'm a firm believer to be able to keep that presentation in line that you would still use your conventional indicator where the line is attached to the bottom. So when you check it, it does hang down vertical at that 90. When you go ahead and you check the float and you're running, and I guess it's terminology called trotting, is that where you run the bait out? Yeah, it's a European term, but that's what we use too. Right. So when you go ahead and check it and that line goes in the top, most of the time your presentation is going, the line is in the top of the float. You're sort of stalling it, right? Backing it down to them, right? Is that the way the conventional gear would look at it? Yeah. And well, it depends on the water. If you're in fishing a really slow pool of uniform depth, even a float fisher is more using a right angle approach straight down. If you're fishing faster water, and, and this comes into play here because the hydrology of a river is such that the turbulence from from you know difference in kind of composition at the bottom as well as friction water you know obeys the laws of friction as well like any substance um the flow at the bottom of a river is typically as it speeds up the river in general speeds up is slower than the current you're seeing at the surface meaning if you think your indicator or your bobber if it's moving the current the speed of the current that you can see in reality, it's probably dragging your bait on the bottom a little bit unnaturally fast. So that trotting or checking, as you noted, that's a way of, of recognizing that and compensating and pulling back a little so your float or your indicator is going a little slower than the surface current. But the idea is you're going to bring it more, your offering, which is the really important part of the presentation, to the speed more in line with what anything would be drifting along the bottom of that river, giving it a more natural look. Now, a really exaggerated version of that can be done where you really check or trot hard. So you actually slow your presentation down even slower than the current at the bottom if you're doing it properly. And um, in that case, you know, really cold water or under fish that are not real active, um, that's where you might employ that. Like in the dead of winter, when you really want to slow things down and give your fish a better look at your presentation. So um, I still though, I still look at that as, a modified version of a vertical presentation, you're still kind of going, you know, your baits or flies sweeping out ahead of your indicator or float, but it's still relatively up and down just at an angle. Horizontal, I'm looking at more like, you know, you're pulling something through the water column kind of parallel to the surface of the water. Gotcha. Okay. Because I struggle a lot in the fly fishing uh, sector of it, just to try to always keep those flies down because you're using this thicker diameter fly line and it's like you're using that a long fly line as a bobber to control a bobber. So it's always a struggle of getting that perfect drift compared to the monofilament line. But my next question was that, you know, you're you you're really, really good at dissecting, you know, the musky fishing and everything else, but you you at times add this extra weight to your big large rubber to get these lures to stay at depth, but also to drop very fast vertically. And this is what I've been noticing myself, is that I've been increasing my length of my leaders. Normally, you know, you would use a seven to say nine foot leader. I'm going, you know, 12, 14, 15, 16 foot. For me to try to simulate that vertical drop for fish reaction, is that is that when you're adding this weight to that lure, is it more for depth? keeping it a depth consistent deeper during the retrieve or is it for when you pause it that vertical drop for a trigger what is that what is that the difference between the two mike yeah that's a great question and just to clarify a little bit you know i'm more that's the approach i'm taking when musky fishing i may be stripping streamers for steelhead it would there could be some you know overlap but yeah it's um couple ways you can look at adding adding weight when you're musky fishing um once if you really need to keep down like um one situation is um where the weight of the bait's more important I'm, I'm more choosing the bait for the weight of it than the size of it is um when i fish the saint Clair river that's big water it's deep it's fast current i find you got to be pretty close to the bottom in the areas i'm successful um i went from the standard seven ounce bondy bait up to the magnum nine ounce bait just to keep down better and um that helps me keep it's funny we talk about the right angle drift and i'm more thinking of like steelhead fishing with a with an indicator or a float i find when you are jigging for muskies even if it's in 30 foot of water the most effectively it's when that line is doing just straight up and down if you start to have it where you gotta 
angle in your line where you're dragging it or it's getting out ahead of your boat, I tend to find you have less control on a bait. I just catch less fish doing that. So that's one case, just keeping it down where I'm using that. But probably more what you were thinking, I, I would, I'm kind of wagering, is more like when you're adding weights to like a bulldog or a Medusa type of a bait, fishing the open water, Lake St. Clair, it's a, it's a really good, you know, tactic to use. Typically in the summer, I'm using that for a couple reasons because the fish are really active in the summer. Um, you can, goes with almost any of these species to say you can speed up your presentation when the fish are more active in warmer water than in colder water when they're a little more lethargic. And you need to kind of get that trigger reaction from a muskie is my take on it. So I want to work my baits pretty fast and pretty erratically in the summer and adding weights to, you know, my big rubber casting baits that time of year. And they can vary anywhere from a half ounce to an ounce and a half of extra weight. I usually add it towards the front of the bait and it not only allows you to work that bait faster, but keep it deeper, but also gives it uh, that really during the pause, it gives that bait a really great action. And, you know, when you, even when you pause, if you're doing kind of a jerk and reel kind of a technique with musky, which is pretty typical on Lake St. Clair, that extra weight is causing that bait to nosedive pretty quickly. And, um, and you're covering more of the water column. If you think about it, you know, that bait it, on the pause is probably dropping a, a couple feet pretty quickly and then you're jerking it back up. So you're giving the fish, you're covering more of the water column and you're fishing more effectively and giving the fish a better opportunity to see your bait. But like, if you were really to pinpoint it, you know, Lake St. Clair, summer fishing, it's the best example I can use of this. You want to fish where there's weeds nearby in the lake, ideally over the weeds or around the weed edges. Say you're in 20 foot of water, maybe those weeds come up seven foot off the bottom. At the lowest point of your presentation, you want that bait to be just basically coming pretty close to tickling the top of those weeds. And as you're jerking, that would be on the pause. As you're jerking, it's kind of pulling it up away from it. You know, there are times they're just going to be up higher, but you know, I envision most of those muskies just patrolling over the top of the weeds. Um, there's times when they're going to be in a real negative, you know, kind of mood and they're going to be down in the weeds. That would call for a little different technique and be a little more challenging, obviously. But um, yeah, using weights, it can allow you to keep a, a rapid retrieve while still keeping relatively deep in a situation like that. And it allows, you know, pretty natural, you know, changes in depth, meaning you're covering more of the water column throughout your casts. Yeah, Mike, that's a... So that's exactly what's interesting. We have two anglers and you're, you know, you're chasing your muskies. In the last two and a half months, I've been chasing these migratory trout around the harbors. And I do use conventional gear, but I'd say 90% is stripping streamers. But what I've learned from trolling is that these fish can be anywhere from around 12 feet deep to say three feet above the surface. And um, knowing that, that when you set your lures, you set some high in the water column, and then there's another little level that are just below that light penetration around 12 feet. I've noticed that fishing the heaviest dumbbell eye minnow smelt imitation, and then, like you say, covering the water vertically, you might get one at 12 feet that sees it comes up, but yet then when you get up high in the water column, you might actually see get interest of another one. So that vertical, I'm sort of covering a bigger, wider zone just for everybody to get a visual of, uh, you know, like what we're trying to achieve when we do these extra weights is cover more water column with that reaction when it, you know, that drop and fall. So it's a pretty key thing for evidently for the conventional gear. And then also too, for fly anglers, not to be afraid of lengthening up your leaders is a good tip with very, very heavyweight flies. Keeps you at fishing depth. It also covers more water, adds more action especially when fish are either picky or when they're really aggressive and they really want something moving fast. Well, let me think, Mike. You know, I think we're getting pretty close. Yeah, we're pretty close to our time that we should be wrapping things up. Is there anything that you would like to throw out there to um, our listeners? Um, any more comments on the Cuyahoga River fishing that's stewing in your little uh, cash memory now before we close it up? I think we were pretty expansive in what we covered. So I, I appreciate the diversity of the conversation. Um, if I welcome any of your listeners, I'm real easy to find online. I just look up Cleveland Metro Parks Fishing Report in a web search. My email and my my contact numbers in there. Anything you want to elaborate on with this or, or bounce off me, I'm happy to talk. So um, no, nah, it's been a cool, 
cool conversation and uh, it's been a blast talking with you, Jeff. Yeah, Mike, thanks for joining us. All your information and intel. I hope everybody enjoyed today's episode and we'll catch you on the next one. And uh, thanks, Mike, for everything, man. Thank you, Jeff. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com, if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon.